0: Okay, we're on Deuteronomy. If you need notes for Deuteronomy, they're in the back. We're going to add a little bit to them today. And then if you could just set them maybe on that row right there where people come in. Anybody else need notes? We're about halfway through Deuteronomy. Survey of Deuteronomy. Is that in the Old or New Testament? What do you think, Greg? Deuteronomy? It's in that part of the Bible that many Christians have forgotten or cut out. You know, that, that that's a heresy that goes way back, um, in the second century, there was a famous Christian name, uh, Marcion. And he did not like the Old Testament, so he cut it out. And then he cut out every quote of it in the New Testament. And then he cut out every mention of the Jews in the New Testament. So I think all he had left was most of Luke and maybe one other book of the Bible. It was, it was quite sad. But Thomas Jefferson Bible, yeah, yeah. He cut out everything that offended him and left the principles, moral principles. The Jefferson Bible. We're, we're so uh, advanced now. He never published it. you know. He just made it for himself. But now, in the last couple of years, someone's decided to start publishing it. So, the Jefferson Bible. Well, let's pray and then we'll begin. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. Now that we're in Christ, we want to study your word. We want to grow. We want to be sanctified. And the key to that is knowing the scripture. Knowing what you have to teach us. And as we know these things, work them out in our lives. Help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, having already been justified. Let us continue to progress in our sanctification. And so, Lord, give us wisdom and knowledge concerning Deuteronomy and help us to remember what we've learned about it. In Christ's name, amen. Book of Deuteronomy, the most foundational book of the Old Testament. We think Genesis is because of creation, and it is. You've got to have Genesis to understand you know, where we came from and why we're sinners. But as far as Israel, as far as the Old Testament itself, Deuteronomy is the foundational book. It is where you find the law all together in one place, and it's where the prophets point back to later when Israel strays. It's where the New Testament points to, where Jesus points to when there's any question about God or His law. It's the top three most one of the top three quoted books in the New Testament behind Psalms and Isaiah. So we got through the intro last week. Uh, we talked about when this is happening. Remember the, the key here is they're about to go into the land, into the land that God has promised them, the land that God promised Abraham. and this is hundreds of years later, Abraham's descendants have grown into a great nation. They've been saved out of Egypt. the first, generation out of Egypt rebelled against God, too scared to go into the land. God said, you'll be punished by withering and dying in the wilderness. So this is the second generation. A new generation. Everyone's died off. You've only got Joshua, Caleb, and Moses left. And Moses is about to die by the end of Deuteronomy, so he won't get to go into the land. Joshua and Caleb will. Everyone else would have been under 20 when the first generation came out of Egypt. So this is a whole new generation. They need to hear God's word preached to them so they know who God is and they know what's expected of them. So Moses does that. He is the mouthpiece of God and he speaks. It's kind of funny, you know, Moses in Exodus says, I can't talk, right? I got, I got a speech problem. Send Aaron. He's greater and God says, okay, I'll send Aaron. And then here's Moses in the book of Deuteronomy giving these multiple chapter sermons. How long did he speak for that day? You know, was this multiple days that he talked? And uh, the preacher of the Old Testament is Moses. So here, here was the outline here, uh, organized around those sermons. The first discourse, the first sermon, talked about what God has done in the past for them. The second one, what God's presently doing. And that has to do with the Ten Commandments, the statues, the judgments. The third one was the future. What God will do in the future. And there are some interpretive issues with that, and we'll look at one of those today. Very end, what happens uh, at the end is the appendix. We're going to transition from Moses to Joshua by the end of the book. So I think we were on this one, right? Yeah, we were here talking about key chapters. So we went through the Ten Commandments, and there was a question last week about how, how do Roman Catholics deal with a uh, statues and paintings, and uh, the, the second commandment, uh, first and second commandment, and I, I mentioned that they kind of reorganize it differently than Protestants, and so I've included that as one of our last slides today. We're going to look at that. Uh, we looked at chapter six, that's the Shema, hear O Israel. This is what they were to teach their kids, the first most important thing about who God is, and then they were supposed to teach their kids everything God had taught them. Everything, which means all the time when you walk when you wake up when you lay down Bind this on your heart bind this on your head bind this on your hand He's not saying take a Bible and you know tie it up to your wrist He's saying these things are in front of you all the time as my people teach the next generation Teach the next generation Make sure they know who God is and what he expects We have to do that as Christians. You should be doing that in your home if you have children in your home and we try to do that and help out parents here as well. The classes right now, what are they studying? The Bible. Those classes over there are studying what's in Scripture. We're trying to teach them the Bible. That's the goal. God's Word. I think we're on chapter 18. It's a key chapter. It's discussing witchcraft and a coming prophet. So we start ta- talking about the Levites. Uh, Then he goes into chapter 18, verse 9. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations, the things of the world. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. What's that? Molech, which was one of the ancient Phoenician Canaanite gods. You offered up your child to him, the statue with a fire burning right there in his hands. They'd build a big fire in the hands of this great uh, bronze statue. Put your baby in there. The baby dies. You give it to that false god. And that god was supposed to bless you. So if you wanted your fields to be really ripe, you wanted to be really wealthy, you gave up your firstborn. I think this has been rightly compared to abortion today. People want to have their own life. They want to be able to do what they want. And often they feel pressure from others. And they go and they give up their child to death. So they can have the life they've always planned. By the way, you know where you can go see a real, almost uh, ancient-sized statue of Molech today? In Rome, outside the Colosseum. They've rebuilt it. Some guy rebuilt all these pagan statues from Carthage. And he's taking them on a world tour. And they let him place it right outside the doors of the Colosseum in Rome. Which has to be... Yeah, the, the Colosseum's owned by the Vatican. So they had to okay... The statue of Molech with his hands like this and all these eyes and stuff. Uh, I think it's like eight or nine feet tall. So you see it if you go to Rome anytime in the near future. All right, continuing here, we're in uh, Deuteronomy 18, uh, verse 10. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. So don't kill your children. One who uses divination, one who tries to, to see into the future or use some sort of... Uh, We would would just say demonic practices today, but they would have called it sorcery, witchcraft, um, to see into the minds of the demons. And one who interprets omens, the ancient world was, was rife with this. They would cut open a goat, cut open a chicken, throw the blood around, take the spleen out, take the liver out, look at it. And that told you if you were going to be successful in battle. So you always, before you went into battle you got to sacrifice an animal. Look at the liver. The liver was nasty. Well, the battle was not going to go well. And so you just sacrificed another one. You just kept going until you found a good one. Then you could tell the general, let's go to battle. And it was the same in your house, in your business as a pagan. God's saying don't be like those pagans when you go into the land. Or sorcery. Sorcery is just a general practice of trying to to use um, spiritual and physical even. um, We would just say miracles when it's used in a good way. Miracles, wonders. But if you use it for evil, if you use it from the power of Satan, that's often called sorcery, witchcraft. Now we know as believers, we can't even do miracles. That was Christ and the apostles. That's God's prerogative. If you want to see a miracle, in other words, you're supposed to go to God and pray that he would do that in ancient times as an Israelite. You're not to go to some demon or false god and try to do Sorcery, And so he's very strong against that. Whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. Moses says, because, uh, because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. So one of the reasons they're going to push out the Canaanites is because they do these evil things. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to the diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. What's the first king of Israel going to do? The very first king they have, Saul, what is he going to do? He's going to get desperate because God has abandoned him and not speaking to him anymore. And what's he going to do? Go to a witch and try to speak to the dead. By that time, he's already rejected by God, but he's, all, uh, he's getting judged additionally in uh, that witchcraft incident. The witch of Endor. Verse fifteen. Now we're going to hear Moses talk about someone coming in the future. Who's this sound like? The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. Men uh, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you ask of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly. So they ask, we can't speak to God directly. We need a we need a mediator. Moses was the mediator, but he says someone's coming. In the future, And they said at the, the mountain, uh, Sinai or Horeb, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore or I will die. The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, like Moses. And I put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So there's a greater prophet than me coming. And Moses says, oh, by the way, or God says, by the way, when there's a false prophet, what should happen to him? He should die. He should die. In the Old Testament in Israel, that was a death sentence. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Here's how you know. He says, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is a thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. You're going to be afraid of prophets because everybody's claiming to speak in the name of God. So how do you know? Well, one of the tests, there's a couple of tests in the Old Testament, or three in the Old Testament, but one of them is, does it come true or not? So we, even modern day prophets uh, who claim to be prophets, we don't even have to really get into the debate whether prophecy continues or not. We might get into that debate. But if you're talking to someone who believes that, you might just say, has this prophet always been accurate? Has, has Mike Bickle at International House of, not pancakes, but uh, International House of Prayer, IHOP, has he always been accurate? And he himself, one of the more famous prophets, um, says that he's only accurate about 60% of the time. So it doesn't mean that we are to you know go out and stone anyone today. This was the nation of Israel ruled over by Israel's priests and Israel's king. But we can learn a principle here that the prophet of God is always right. And the one who's coming in the future, he will always speak for God. Who's that gonna be? Jesus. So they're already looking in the in the days of Moses, they're already thinking about someone's coming greater than Moses. He's our he's our favorite guy, he's our most famous. Man, we all want to be like Moses, but there's someone better than him coming? Yes, yes. Chapter uh, 28 is about blessings and cursings. Blessings and cursings. So let's remember now, is Israel saved or not saved at this point? Generally speaking. They're saved, right? They're saved out of Egypt. God said, I'm your God. I brought you out. They said, we want to follow you. You're the God of our father Abraham. You're our God. Now, were all of them actually regenerate? No. There's a big circle called Israel. There's a smaller circle called regenerate Israel. Israel in the heart. Their heart had been circumcised. Many had been circumcised physically, but a smaller group actually had been born again by the Holy Spirit. But they all, even those circumcised physically who were not born again, they all said, you're our God. So he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to do these things. If you do them and you go into the land, you'll be blessed. If you don't do them and you go into the land, what's going to happen? You'll be cursed. So that's chapter 28 in summary. There's going to be consequences for your disobedience. Consequences. Look at 2820. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed, until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds, because you have forsaken me. So if they turn away from God, he will punish them. It doesn't mean he's going to completely get rid of Israel and forget his promises. Paul will pick that up in the New Testament in Romans 11. But the nation is going to be destroyed if they turn away from God. The Lord will make the pestilence cling to you until he has consumed you from the land where you are entering to possess it. The Lord will smite you with consumption, and with fever, and with inflammation, and with fiery heat, and with the sword, and with blights, and with mildew, and they will pursue you until you perish. The heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you iron. It's not a good place. You don't want to be in that, that kind of situation. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. So if they obey, things will go well with them. They'll be blessed. And they were at times under certain kings. Even though David was a sinner, generally the nation was blessed. Even though Solomon eventually went astray with the wives and with all the pagan gods, at the beginning of his reign, he was the wealthiest man in the world. The wisest man in the world. And then after that, we see a series of bad kings, sometimes a good king occasionally, Bad kings, bad kings, worshiping false gods. Why did they get taken into Babylon? Why did the city of Jerusalem get destroyed? Number one reason? Paganism. They turned away from God and turned to another god. And Moses is telling them, here's what's going to happen if you do that. Here's what's going to happen if you do that. He's telling them almost a thousand years before it actually will happen. He says, look, if you disobey and turn to other gods, God will destroy you. What happens about 900 years later? Long period of disobedience and turning to false gods. And God comes and destroys them with the Babylonians. God is not just going to sit back and watch sin continue amongst his people. Or amongst the world in general. All right, 32. We're getting near the end here. 32 is the Song of Moses. If you haven't read the Song of Moses, you should read it. Moses was pretty good. I don't know why he's complaining to God in Exodus that he can't speak. Seems like he can speak well. Seems like he can write poetry well. I mean, I can't do both of those things. I don't even know if I can speak well sometimes, much less write poetry. And uh, Here he is writing. He's also in one of the Psalms. uh, I think it's Psalm 90, somewhere around 90. Moses has a psalm in there too. So, Song of Moses and then the death of Moses at the end. So let's read chapter 34. Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land. So he's not going to get to go into it, but he's at least going to see it. He's at least going to see it. Gilead, as far as Dan, and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim, Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the western sea, and the Negev, and the plain, and the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. Why can't, why can't he go? Yeah, he struck the rock twice out of anger. Out of anger. And that's a disobedience to God. God didn't tell him to do that. He went ahead and thought he would do that. He was angry at the people. He was frustrated, I think, even at God. And uh, he's not going to get to go into the land. He actually blames the Israelites for it. So Moses, a servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him. Who's the he? Yeah, in the NASB, it's capital H for he. Other translations don't always capitalize um, the pronouns for God. But it's he. God buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. Why do you think God buried Moses and not the people? They would worship him. They, I mean, just look at, at so-called Christianity in, in Israel today. In the Holy Land, you go there, what do you see? Shrines, idolatry. And these are actual sites where Christ, you know, probably was crucified, where Christ uh, supposedly uh, was in the upper room, where Christ was uh, supposedly buried, and they build these huge shrines and all this pagan idolatry stuff. Imagine what Israel would have done with Moses. So they don't get to know where he's going to be buried. God takes his body away. Uh, Jude talks a a bit about that with uh, Michael the archangel fighting with Satan over the body of Moses. Um, Verse 7, Although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. He had no real effects of age. I mean, he probably looked older, but it wasn't like he was just barely getting around at 120. God had blessed him, God had preserved his life. Verse 8, So the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for thirty days. And the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So now Joshua is going to take over. Moses has passed the leadership to him. This is in God's Wisdom, God had already set this up. Remember, Joshua was the one guarding the tabernacle. He's sort of Moses' right hand man for some time now. Verse 10 Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So Moses got to speak with God face to face. Even Joshua won't get that. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land and for all the mighty power and for the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. So here's a fun question. Who wrote this last chapter of Deuteronomy? Moses wrote the Pentateuch, right? From beginning to end. But who wrote this chapter? And it's still part of Deuteronomy. Could be. I mean, we don't know. It could be Joshua. I, I lean towards Joshua because that's the, the next book, right? And, and who wrote Joshua? Probably Joshua. But... We'll come to that. I think also Joshua's death gets recorded, doesn't it, at the end of Joshua. So we'll come to that next week. But yeah, at the very end. So here's where liberals will go and sometimes even conservatives. They'll say, well, we know Moses didn't write the end because he's dead. This is is what happened after he died. So I really can't say Moses wrote any of it. Maybe he wrote some of it. Maybe other people wrote some of it. And you can kind of see the logic that they go with there. I don't think that's right. Jesus said, Moses. All five books, he just called Moses, right? There's Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. So Jesus thought Moses wrote all of it. I'm sure this little ending attachment would be by Joshua, still inspired scripture though. Joshua wrote Joshua, so I got no problem with another inspired author writing the last little bit of Moses' life. But it is interesting how liberals will try to pick at Moses as the author just using that last chapter. Okay, key passages. Don't add or subtract from the Word. This is this an important passage? Very important. Many want to add or subtract. Sometimes they don't say that, but essentially what they're believing and saying is that God's Word continues to be added to. You shall not add, you shall not add to the Word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Don't add anything to it. No more to be written from the mouth of Moses. No more to be written down. Now this is Old Testament, right? So there's going to be more added after Deuteronomy. That's not the point. Don't go back and insert things into the first five books that weren't there to begin with. That's the idea. Where do we see this picked up in the New Testament? At the very end of the Bible, in Revelation. Anyone who adds to the prophecy of this book will be cursed. All the cursings of the book will be brought upon them. So that's the last book in the Bible. Even though it's talking about the prophecy in Revelation, since it's the last book, nothing else is going to be added after. There is nothing else. So don't add to Scripture. It's said in Deuteronomy. It's said in Revelation. Let's go there. That's going to be the test and death for false prophets. We did read about that in, in 18. So in 13, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, this is chapter 13 of Deuteronomy, the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of the prophet or that dreamer of dreams. So even if he does, if he says this is going to happen and it comes true, because that was one of the tests we saw in 18, we're not done testing the guy yet, are we? Because if he has bad theology, which means in this case telling you to follow false gods, he's not right. So we've already saw two tests of a, of a prophet. What are they? He has to be 100% accurate if he's from God, and he can't lead you astray with heretical theology. And In the case of 13 here, heretical theology is go follow another God. We have lots of different uh, heretical theologies with prophets today, don't we? 21, death for incorrigible children. Just mm, ought to scare some kids in the room right here twenty one eighteen. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. Then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate, at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious, he will not obey us, he's a glutton and a drunkard then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. So he shall remove evil from your midst. And all Israel will hear of it in fear. Yeah, they're talking sons. And I think it's going to be an adult son at this point. This is an adult son. You've been you've raised him in your home. you taught him the word of God. You've taught him about God. And either he he starts teaching paganism or he's a drunkard and a glutton. And essentially... There's a death penalty according to God's law. And parents have to be the first ones to acknowledge that. Because what would typically happen in most societies is that the town would say, God's law says this person should die. Parents would say, well, you know, he's the nicest guy in the world. He'll never do such a thing. I can't believe it. Right? Well, the law of God says here's what you're supposed to do. So I think, I think God put it in there The parents had to be the first ones uh, to be at the forefront of his execution. Um, as Christians, again, we're going to come to it, but we're not under the Mosaic Law, so we shouldn't be trying to do this. But this is a this is a similar analogous to excommunication in the church, or church discipline. So, you know, somebody's raised up in the church, they're an adult, they join as a member, we have to excommunicate them because of drunkenness, un- unbelieving lifestyle. The parents ought to be in agreement with that, and not fight against it. Well, John Piper had to execu- uh, not execute, execute <laughs> not excommunicate his own son from his church. And he was the guy who led, of course, he's the pastor of the church, but he's the guy who led the, the church discipline against his son, who was a grown man who had turned away from the Lord. Eventually, he got restored and he repented and came back, of course. But uh, there's a man who had to stand up in front of a church of hundreds, maybe a thousand, and tell them that his own son had walked away from the faith. Eli, did Eli do anything with his sons? Yeah, and even Samuel, you know, his sons sort of uh, had free reign, but especially Eli's sons. So Eli did nothing. Eli sat back and just let it all happen. And, of course, God came and, and poured out his judgment on those boys, or well, they were grown men. But laws concerning seductions, lay. That's is the lie with a woman. It's not your wife. Let's go look at that. Um, This is interesting. Where do we get the idea in Christianity that if a man gets a woman pregnant, he's got to marry her? And is that even the right way to think about it? So 22, 28. If a man finds a girl who's a virgin, who is not engaged, seizes her and lies with her, they are discovered. The man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father 50 shekels of silver. She shall become his wife because he has violated her. He cannot divorce her all his days so that's this is for neither one of them are married. there's other laws that are going to speak about if they're married and commit adultery. We saw some of those in Leviticus. so um, what's happening here? Well this is the way that they're gonna take care of this young girl. this these two went and sinned together and uh, you know it's not as if this young man can go on with his life create his own family God says, because she's not going to probably get married. If, if this becomes known in the camp, in the city, then she's done. She's, a, she's by herself the rest of her life. And so he's got to marry her. Now, does this apply to the New Testament Christian? Don't have 50 shekels, that's one thing, right? Now, I'm going to agree that doesn't apply to New Testament Christian. But in saying that, we're not saying that that's not a sin. It's still a sin. But we're not under the Mosaic Law. We'll come to that, hopefully, today. But um, for a long time, it's sort of been tradition within the Christian cultures, Christian nations, that if this happened, particularly if she got pregnant, that they had to get married. That was required. And here's the verse to point out. This actually comes up, because what does the New Testament say about marrying a non-Christian? Should you marry a non-Christian if you're a Christian? So let's, let's, say we, let's say we believe we're under this Old Testament law here as a Christian. And somebody gets a girl pregnant and they're forced to marry. But let's say she's an unbeliever and he's a believer. What do we just do? We just use the Old Testament law to force something that the New Testament says should not happen. Now this is assuming in the Old Testament that they're both Israelites. They're both people of God. But we can't just take these laws and just transport them over to the New Testament and say, that's it, cut and dry, easy. Now, of course, if they can get married, wouldn't we say, yes? If they're both believers, if they desire that, all I'm saying is this law does not dictate that they must get married. All right, secret things belong to the Lord. Uh, Let's go to 24, 24, 1 through 4. This is the divorce I preached on this when Jesus quotes it in Luke. A man takes a wife, marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his sight because he has found some indecency in her. So this is not like the rabbis taught, right? She cooks bad food. She burnt my meal. I can divorce her. That's what the rabbis of Jesus' day thought. What's the indecency here? Some sort of sexual immorality. He writes her a certificate of divorce. So it's allowed in Scripture and he would write her a certificate. So she would have proof that she had been divorced. And then she could get remarried. In other words, be taken care of. Of course, she's going to have problems with that if it's indecency. Because the word's going to get out. But it's possible, in other words, that she can get remarried. Uh, if she becomes another man's wife, verse 3, and if the latter husband turns against her, writes her certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out from his house. If the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, and her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her. So he can't change his mind later. You know, that problem we had a while back. You know, come on back. Let's, let's, let's get married again. So Jesus does quote from this. Now, he's not saying necessarily everything that's said in chapter 24 we bring over to, into the church. But he's saying there is something in the Bible about divorce. There are certain reasons for divorce. Then he expands upon that, especially in Matthew 19, Matthew 6, Luke 7, I believe. All right, 29, 29. This is that verse you want to pull out whenever people say, John, I don't know why you're talking about election. I mean, that's, that's up to God. We, we shouldn't study it. We shouldn't look into it. It's a doctrine that that's God's prerogative, you know. That, that's God. Don't presume upon God by talking about election and predestination. Well, here's what it says in Deuteronomy, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. So I would agree with that person, if election is not in the Bible, then we don't need to talk about it. Secret things belong to God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. So if it's in the Bible, we should talk about it. That's God's people, in other words. That's revealed. What's revealed from God? You know, not what Lance comes and tells me he had a vision yesterday or a dream or a prophecy. I don't know if that's from God. Probably not if it's Lance, right? But I know this Bible's is from, from God. This is the Word of God. And so whatever's in here, we should study. It's been revealed to us. It belongs to us as God's people. But the secret things, you know, that's speculation. That's why did God do this? Remember what happened to Job and his friends when they started guessing, especially the friends, why God did something and they were wrong? That's a secret thing. That belongs to, to God. Thirty-two, thirty-nine. God governs life and death, sovereignty. He says, I kill, I make alive, I wound, I heal. So let's look at that. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded. It is I who heal. There is no one who can deliver from my hand. Well, these hurricanes, that's not God, is it? When people die, that that can't be God. There's a lot of uh, famous preachers who got in trouble for that when 9-11 struck. and People said, you know, this is God. God is sovereign over it. And we shouldn't go too far. Say we know the reason why that happened. Right? A lot of people said, well... America's done this. America's done that. Uh, But everything that happens is under God's sovereignty. And he does it for a reason. We can at least admit that. Sometimes we know. We can kind of find it in Scripture, the reason why things happen. Sometimes we can't. Key people in the book. The two key people are Moses and Joshua. You know who Moses is. You've been in here this class for a while. Joshua, who is he? Moses' servant and successor, a great military leader who led the people into the promised land. That's Joshua. Who's Moses? He's not a heathen prophet. That's Balaam. Moses is the leader, the spokesperson, the mediator, the prophet. Uh, He's the one who led them under God's direction out of Egypt and gave them God's words and also wrote the first five books of the Bible. Helpful commentaries. This one's really good. Um, Eugene Merrill on Deuteronomy. So if you ever do a Bible study where they want to get into Deuteronomy... Eugene Merrill. You're going to notice in the Old Testament, I recommend a lot of these new American commentary. It's a good set, especially the Old Testament. And then Daniel Block, I heard him. He came and spoke at KBC a few years back, just on the gospel in Deuteronomy. And he went through the book of Deuteronomy and showed how the gospel elements were present there. They were pointing to Christ. So I'm sure he touched on chapter 18, the prophet who would come later. And this is an application commentary. It's a big one, the NIV application commentary. But it's a good one. Okay, interpretive problems. This one you're probably going to say, what's the big deal? But it is important. Um, we have this verse, or this phrase in 6.4. And there's been some debate over exactly what it means. The NASB has helped us. He's already uh, sort of trans- or picked a position for us, I think, in the NASB. Heroes, re- the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. So that's what we're looking at. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. But there's no verbs in the Hebrew form of it. The word, the verb is is just left out. It often is in the Bible and ancient languages. So it's just Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Ehad. Yahweh our God, Yahweh one. So what do we do with that? Yahweh our God, Yahweh one. So there's been four different views. Some would say the focus here is on the uniqueness of God. Yahweh is our God, and He is Yahweh alone. He's very unique. He's special. That's true, but is that what the verse is saying? Be Yahweh our God. Yahweh is one. So it's focusing on the fact that He is a whole, and He has unity. He's one. Not alone, but one. Of course, He is alone, but the idea is more on His unity. See, Yahweh is our God Yahweh is one. That's what we just read out of the NASB. So you probably already know where I'm going. Right? Just based on that. What do you think I'm going to pick? NASB? Usually. And I am on this. Yahweh our God is one Yahweh. The last one doesn't really fit. So, um, yeah, it's going to be C. Yahweh is our God. So he's Israel's God. And he's also the God of the New Testament believer. And he's one God. There's not multiple gods over Israel, over the Christian. So he's their personal God, and he is one God. This will help us later in the New Testament when we talk about the Trinity and the doctrine of the Trinity. So that's what they're to teach their children. That's what they're to recite, and they still recite it even to this day in their prayers. Structure of the law is given in Deuteronomy 12 through 25. So 12 through 25 There's a lot of laws there. What should we do about this? What should we do about that? We've read some of them in looking at these chapters. So is that kind of just a jumbled collection without any structure? Or do those chapters pretty much follow the Ten Commandments? So you have the Ten Commandments in chapter 5. And then 12 through 25 is sort of an explanation of the Ten Commandments and how to apply them in Israel. What do you guys think I'm going to pick? Let's look at a chart first on that. You all see that chart? It's a little dark background. but um, The first and second commandment deal with worship. That was in 5, 6 through 10. Hey, that's what chapter 12 is about. 5, 11 is the third commandment. deals with the name of God. That's what 13 and 14 mostly focus on. Fourth commandment, 14 through 16, that's on the Sabbath. So you see how they do line up. So there is order to God's word. What these chapters are, 12 through 25, is an opening up and an explanation of the Ten Commandments already listed in short form. So be. Okay, here's a fun one. We've talked about this before in theology class. Is the law of Moses one whole thing that can't be chopped up? Or like some of the reformers said, Luther and I think even Calvin and many many of the Reformed today, would say there's three parts. We're still under the first part, the moral law, but the ceremonial is dropped off and the civil is dropped off when Christ came. Now there's a certain branch, they're getting smaller, but there's sometimes in this area, who would say, actually, The ceremonial is the only one gone, and we're still supposed to be a civil theocracy under God. It's called theonomy, or reconstructionism. Well, which one has all the verses? Let's look at these verses. James 2.10. What's James going to say? James is a Jew. James is a brother of Jesus. James is writing to people who are trying to be legalistic. And uh, he has something to say about that. So, Let's see what James has to say. Who knows this one? For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So don't think, you're saying, don't think you're special and say, oh, I can keep the law of God. I can keep the law of God. He says, no, no. If you have one sin against God's law, against God, then the whole law stands over you. You've transgressed the whole law. Galatians 5.3. What's Paul going to say about this? Well, we come into this in our Bible studies this spring. Men's and women's Bible studies. We're doing Galatians. so If you'd like to join us, please do. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision. So what's the problem in Galatia? They want to go back under the law of Moses and say that every Christian is bound by it. Paul says that's not true. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Don't just take circumcision and make it uh, bound upon the Christian. If you're going to go that way, then the whole law must be upon the Christian as well. The idea is that's not the case. He's just trying to use logic. And then Matthew 5.19. What's Jesus going to say? Is the law together or is it in three pieces? Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the law stands together. It's a whole. It's the Mosaic law, it's the Mosaic covenant. There's a covenant that goes along with it. In fact, the covenant's the main thing. The law is part of the covenant. What's the covenant? If you obey God and the land, he will bless you, the nation Israel. If you disobey, he will curse you. That's basically the covenant that Moses was given. Now, how do we obey God? That's the law. So is it wrong to think of them in three different categories? I wouldn't say it's wrong to think of them like that. But we have to be really careful when starting to say, we're going to take this one out and this one out and this one still goes on. That's not the way the Bible talks about it. If you talk to a Jew today and say, which part of the law do you keep? You keep the moral law? You keep the ceremonial law? Of course, we know they can't keep the ceremonial law, but they don't think of it as divided up. They never have. The Jews have always thought of it as the law of Moses. That's their law. So, what are we under then as a Christian? Are we lawless? May it never be we're not lawless. The law of Christ, or what James calls the royal law. So, we don't have... Time to go into the comparison, but essentially the law of Christ is going to sound very similar to what often the reformers called the moral law in Moses. Why would that be so similar? Same God? Same expectations for holiness? Yeah. Same expectations for holiness. So there's going to be a lot of similarities between the Ten Commandments and all the teachings of Jesus. There's going to be a lot of similarities between what God expects of Israel and what God expects and the New Testament life. But that ought not to lead us to start chopping up the law, sliding these little boxes out. It's fully replaced, Jesus says. He has come, and the law is no more for the Christian. But he's given a new law. He's given a new law. All right, the covenants. This is a fun one. Really, the covenant, I think, singular. But let's look at chapter 29. Deuteronomy 29. I sort of hinted about it last week. Starting in the beginning here. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab. So he's about to give them some words, some commandments. And it's a covenant. And it's one that's made in the land of Moab besides the covenant which he had made with him. At Horeb. What's Horeb again? Horeb is Sinai. It's another name for Mount Sinai. So down in the wilderness, Mount Sinai is where they went. When they came out of Egypt, they went up to Mount Sinai, burning bush. Moses received the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Covenant. Truly the Sinaitic Covenant is a better name for it because it's not like Moses gave it. It was the covenant given at Sinai. Or we might call it the Israelite covenant. But we'll just go with Sinaitic covenant because that's what's in this list here. Okay, so what is this covenant? And he goes on in chapter 29. Uh, he summons them all. He begins to recall what's happened here. And skip over to chapter 30. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God. So what happened in chapter 20 is Moses says, In the future you're going to disobey. And God's going to take you away. He's going to destroy your nation. He's going to burn you. And he's going to just just go back up and let's read some uh, twenty-nine-twenty-seven. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the land, to bring upon it every curse which is written in this book the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and in fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as it is to this day. Why? Verse 25. Because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went and served other gods and they worshiped them and gods whom they have not known. He, he acts like he's in the future looking back. And then he goes on in chapter 30. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you. The blessings and the curse which I have set before you, you call them to mind. And all the nations, wait a second, they're about to go into their own nation. Why is he talking about all the nations? Because he says in the future, they're going to be spread out by God. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him. You're going to be spread out someday and you're going to return to the true God, your God, with all your heart and soul. According to all that I commanded you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity. Nine hundred years before the Babylonian captivity, a thousand years, and Moses is writing us. And he's going to have compassion on you. He's going to gather you again from all the peoples, where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcast are at the end of the earth, from there the Lord will gather you. So he's going to bring them back into the land. Now look at look at verse six. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God. So he's going to change their hearts so that they love God with all their heart, with all their soul, so that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies now and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. You shall again obey the Lord. You will observe his commandments. Then the Lord your God will prosper you. You'll be a blessing once again. And then he goes on to tell them, Choose life. I've set before you everything. Make sure you do it. So what is this new covenant that's in the land of Moab? It's not Sinai. Moab's a long way from Sinai, so they're not the same thing. Although that's B. People say, well, the covenant mentioned in 29.1 is just the same one at Sinai, repeated. I would buy that if Moses said that in 29.1. If he said, these are the words of the covenant, which the Lord Moses commanded you, and Moab, and it's also the same one in Hor. But that's not what he says. Besides, chapter 29 and 30 is another covenant besides that. So, you know, the easy way out of that is just to pick them both, right? C. it's both. I don't have to choose. I don't have to do much work there. And that's not necessarily bad. I mean, I'm not going to pick C, but a lot of good and godly men pick C. The Palestinian covenant is um, just dealing with the land. So many will say, hey, this new covenant he's talking about here, this extra covenant in Moab, that's actually just about the land that Abraham was promised. So that's the part of the Abrahamic covenant where he'll get this land. That's what's being discussed. But it's not really in context, is it? He's not given the limit to the land. He's already done that with Abraham. He doesn't need to do it again. So what am I going to choose? What does this sound like? God's going to change your heart. You're going to obey. You're going to love him. What does that sound like? Any ideas? The new covenant. The new covenant. covenant. Now this is not, uh, everybody doesn't agree. I mean the majority probably take B or C in the commentators. But but I think D is good. I remember when Dr. Essex taught this class, he made a big case for the new covenant. Circumcision of the heart. That's actually something Paul uses in the New Testament to describe what happens in a person's heart when they're born again. And it's not the Sinaitic Covenant because he's saying they're going to they're turn away, then be brought back. And so if you read Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel is prophesying that God's going to bring you back into the land. He's going to wash you with clean water. His Spirit's going to come upon you. He's going to take out the heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. Then you'll want to observe his statutes. Then you'll want to observe his commandments. So this is a preview of the New Covenant which is pretty amazing if you think about it. They haven't even disobeyed yet. They haven't even gone into the land to set up their kingdom, set up their nation. He's already telling them what's going to happen. Does that change their mind? They still, as a nation, go and rebel. They just forget, right? I mean, do you remember, is it Hezekiah, I think, or Josiah, one of those kings? They're like, oh, we found the Bible in the temple. We found the book of Deuteronomy. You know, it was buried in there somewhere and we were cleaning some things out. Look, we found the Bible and they have a whole, they have a revival. They have a celebration in Israel. They forgot the scriptures. They forgot what Moses said would happen to them. And they weren't going back and reading this book like they're supposed to. Remember, the king's supposed to make his own copy of Deuteronomy when they have a king someday. And he didn't do it. Okay, last one. This came up last week. How do we order the Ten Commandments? I bet you didn't know there's different orders to the Ten Commandments. Do we take the Reformed Protestant view? By the way, there's no Armenian Protestant view because where'd the Armenians get everything? From the Reformed Protestants and then they just changed election and stuff. Eastern Orthodox and Jewish or the Roman Catholic and Lutheran? What do you guys think I'm going to choose? All right, here's what I'm talking about. Just look at this top part of the chart here. The Jews, now not Jews today, they have a little different order, but according to the Talmud, the the ancient Jewish records of what they believed, extra-biblical writings, That's how they, I am the Lord your God, which we would call the preface. And then the you shall not start. So they would say, I'm the Lord your God, and then you shall not have any other gods before me. That's the first commandment. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourselves an idol. Don't make statues and call it God and worship it. Don't go through statues and idols to worship God. And then on down the list. Okay. Anglican, Reformed, and other Christians. What do you guys think I'm going to pick here? You think I'm going to be Jewish, Orthodox, or Roman Catholic today? What do you think, John? You think I'm going to go with the Reform? The Reform, what what your Bible probably shows here when you look at it, if you were to look at Deuteronomy 5, it shows it by paragraphs. So that's how you would see it in your Bible, by paragraphs. Each commandment is a paragraph, and by the time you get to the last few commandments, If you have a a paragraph tab Bible, each one will start on its own tab at the end. So what's the difference here? Not much. I mean, we're pretty much following the Jewish order. We just call that first little part the preface. It's not actually a commandment. It's just stating who God is before he gives the commandment. Okay, Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox, uh, different Eastern Orthodox is a general term. What'd they do? Pretty much the same thing. They just include the preface. Roman Catholics and Lutherans, though, what'd they do? They grabbed the second commandment and stuck it in the first commandment. So the first commandment is about you shall have no other gods before me. There is no commandment for them in their mind. You shall not make for yourselves an idol. They would say it's not an idol. They're just praying through it. They're just thinking about it. It's not worship. So you have here the first and second commandments combined together. So they would say, there's nothing about not having an, a statue. There's nothing about not having paintings. There's nothing about not having little, what, what we call idols. It's all about not having other gods. As long as that thing helps you focus on God, there's not a problem. And then they reorder to make up for it down here. They split the you shall not covet. So the ninth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. The tenth is you shall not covet anything else. You've got you to make it ten by the time they get done. So they split that out. So in their minds, they're not worshiping an idol. It just helps them to worship God. But in everybody else's minds, that's two different commandments. And where am I going to fall? Reformed Protestants, of course. I think that's the, the you shall not, if you just follow the flow. Uh, that's how it's going to work out. If you have questions about that, let me know. Next week, we begin um, begin Joshua. So read through Joshua. A quick read. You can speed read it. You'll be ready for class in a week. Lord, we are grateful so much for the book of Deuteronomy. Even though we're not under the Mosaic law, we can learn much from it. And it's quoted in the New Testament. There are many principles there. There are many things there that teach us about you. They teach us about your people. They teach us about what you expect. So help us to love that book, to study it, and to read it. In Jesus' name, amen.